The Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 29, verse 30, through chapter 30, verse 24. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as his wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, 
May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning on this warm and sunny Sunday. And if this is your first time here at One Ancient Hope, we're, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we, we do hope you feel warmly welcomed here by the church. And, and as the church, we are that community that's, that's created, that's called, that's collected by the word of, of God. And as we see in, in this reading, the Bible is not a book of of heroes. It's, it's a book of people like me and like you that are in desperate, desperate need of God's grace. And it's in light of that truth, and it's in light of the grace that God gives us through his son Jesus Christ that we approach him in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way that it speaks truly about the hardness, about the tragedy of, of life in a fallen world, but we think we thank you more, Father, that it gives us the promise of your gospel, the gospel promise that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name and in the power of the Spirit that he has sent to us that we pray. Amen. Well, as the, as the Jacob narrative progresses, we find here that Leah is put in a terrible situation. If you remember from last week, her father Laban has forced her into a marriage with Jacob when, when Jacob actually thought that he was marrying her sister, Leah, or sorry, her sister Rachel. And so Leah finds herself treated as a piece of property and unwanted by Jacob, the man who is now her husband. In the text, it it doesn't pull any punches here. It tells us quite plainly that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. We even find that Leah was, was unloved or hated, at least in comparison with the affection that Jacob lavished upon Rachel. And if you think about it, very likely Rachel had always received more attention than Leah, and Leah had been repeatedly thrust to the side and ignored. And perhaps Leah thought that once she was married, finally she would escape from her sister's shadow. But here in this marriage arrangement deceptively set up by her father Laban, Leah finds herself more than ever ignored and dismissed and and unloved at the expense of her sister. Once again, the Jacob narrative confronts us with a tragic family fallout but again, one into which the grace of God powerfully enters. And so let's look at this text under three headings. The problem of love, the problem of reproach, and lastly, the problem of love and reproach. The problem of love. Well, Leah seeks the love of her husband, Jacob, but it's not something that Jacob gives to her. And unfortunately, neither Laban nor Jacob see this as a problem, but there is one who does, and that's God himself. God sees Leah, and God hears Leah, and we see God lavishing a special affection upon Leah. God graciously enables Leah to have a number of children. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? 
What is God doing in giving children to Leah? Is he doing this so that Jacob would love her? Well, whenever we approach the Bible, we have to remember that our God is a great and sovereign God, that his plans never fail, that he accomplishes all that he intends. And if this gift of children does not accomplish Leah's plan, God must have some other good in mind for Leah. If you look at chapters 29, verses 31 through 35, you see here a rapid literary progression as Rachel, or sorry, as Leah changes her disposition towards her husband. She seeks the love of Jacob, and she does so by giving him sons. We find with the birth of the firstborn, she thinks, now my husband will love me. And she names the child Reuben, and, and Reuben can literally be translated into, see, a son. Look, Jacob, look at this boy, the boy that I produced for you, the boy that I gave to you. And so, please, Jacob, see this son and love me as a wife. We're not given the way that Jacob responds in the text, but we are given the indication that things have not worked out like Leah has hoped. We see two more sons being born. We see Simeon and and Levi, and the name of Simeon expresses Leah's desire to be heard by her husband, and the name Levi communicates her desire to commune with, to be attached to her husband. But we find that things have not worked out as Leah has hoped. Yet while Jacob has not changed, we find that Leah has After the birth of of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, we read the following. Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Leah no longer expects Jacob to give her love in return for the birth of Of these sons. Rather, she comes to rejoice in the good gift that is the child himself. She recognizes that this child, he is a gift, and it leads her to praise the great giver of all gifts, the creator of us all, God. She realizes that that this, this child, these children, they're not means to an end. They shouldn't be seen as ways that she earns the affection, the love of her husband. And we, too, can make this mistake, too, in in, in versions of modern parenting. Oftentimes, we look to our children as sources of acclaim, as we point out their professional or academic or athletic accomplishments. And we, too, have to remember that children are to be loved simply because children are a great gift from our gracious God. And so Judah and his three brothers, they're not means of earning the love of Jacob for Leah. Rather, these are good gifts that should lead us in gratitude and praise to God. And so we find that Leah has changed. Her notion of motherhood has changed, and this was God's intent. However, tragically, we find that Jacob himself has not changed, and the painful situation continues. In fact, it seems to get even worse. After the birth of Judah, we're simply told that Leah ceases bearing. And we're not told why, but but one commentator, Robert Alter, 
suggests that it might be the case that from Judah on, Jacob no longer was physically intimate with Leah, at least not in any regular sense. We find here, for instance, a situation in which Leah must, in a sense, purchase a night with Jacob by way of these mandrakes, these, these roots that her son was collecting. It hints that, that maybe from this point onward, only on occasions like this was Jacob with Leah. And we can go further. Note the bitterness of the exchange between the two sisters in response to Rachel's request for the mandrakes. What does Leah say? She says to her sister, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Leah's response, well, it it certainly refers to the fact that Rachel is the one loved by the husband, Jacob. But it might also suggest, suggest that at this point, Rachel actually keeps Leah from coming to be with Jacob because Rachel is envious of the children that Leah has born to Jacob. And so we find that perhaps Leah's bearing of children actually pushed her farther away from Jacob. And this is a problem. Certainly, childbearing should not be a basis of love, the basis of love between husband and wife, but rearing and raising children should be something that brings the husband and the wife closer together. For instance, the legal scholar Erica Bakioki, she actually works to connect the, the, the work of um, the 18th century English thinker Mary Wollstonecraft with modern sociological data, and she writes the following about this dynamic. Fathers who are attentive to their children, and even more importantly to their children's mothers, not only have happier children, but their children also have happier mothers. Indeed, studies have found that the single best predictor of a happy mother is an emotionally attentive father. To be sure, this is a call for all husbands to be emotionally attentive to their wives and to their children, but it's also a strong rebuke to what we see here from Jacob in the way that he treats Leah, not to mention the fact that he has taken these other two women, Bilhah and Zilpah, as maidservants. And so in light of all of this mess, in light of all of this brokenness, we do well to step back and take stock of everything that's happening here. All of the relational breakdown. Think about it. We find parental parent-child breakdown. Laban treats his daughter as property, and even after Judah, Leah is still tempted to treat her children as a means of Jacob's affection. She names the fifth child Issachar, and and Issachar speaks of a kind of wage or, or payment. And earlier, of course, in the narrative, we find that the love of the father Isaac had to be earned by his two sons. Esau strove continually to earn that love, and it was not something that Jacob himself was ever able to do. We find breakdown in the husband-wife relationship. Jacob does not love Leah. He does not see her. He does not hear her. He does not commune with her. We see sibling breakdown. Leah and, their, Leah and Rachel's relationship becomes one of bitterness, of hostility, of competition, of rivalry. And of course, this is, same, this is the, the, the same thing we see with Esau and Jacob's relationship as well. And so we have to note something very important here. It's the fact that all of these relational breakdowns are directly 
connected. Not one of them stands alone. What we find here is a kind of web wherein one relational breakdown affects and corrupts the other. And in each relational breakdown, we see something important. It's the fact that the love of the other must be earned. The child, the spouse, the sibling must be judged worthy of love. The relationship itself does not guarantee that love. The person must be judged worthy. We see this, for example, also in our modern notions of of marriage. We, We look at the ways that divorce abounds. We assume if the other person does not bring us fulfillment, joy, personal satisfaction, if our perceived needs are not met, then we are due for a change. Marriage, then, would rest upon the current state of our feelings for the other person, and marriage would be a matter of serving my personal fulfillment and personal happiness. But consider some thoughts from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is from his letters and papers from prison. The theologian and martyr, he he writes the following on the occasion of his niece's wedding. He says, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Bonhoeffer then goes on to write, It's a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together. Indeed, anyone who knows that that may say confidently, What God has joined together can no man put asunder. Free from all anxiety that is always characteristic of love, you can now say to each other with complete and confident assurance, We can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other till death. Bonhoeffer's assessment is that marriage does not rest on the back and forth feelings of of love, but rather the love between the persons rests upon the relationship itself. We don't love the person because of the way that we are currently attracted to them in this or that way, We love the person because that person is our husband or that person is our wife. The the relationship itself demands the love of the other. And because of that, we can rest in that commitment. As Bonhoeffer says, we are free from all anxiety that is always a characteristic of love. We can rest in the confident assurance that we will never lose the love of the other person. We can rest in the fact that the love is based on the covenant of marriage. At least that's what marriage is supposed to be like, but of course we see a far cry from that here in the relationship between Jacob and Leah. But we can go deeper because in Bonhoeffer's words, we actually see a kind of paradigm for for all relationships. Again, parents are called to love their children because they are their children. It's not because of this or that achievement, or it's not because the children behave in this way that they're loved. They're loved because they are children. The parental relationship itself is the basis for the love. And again, this is what Leah learns when she names Judah. And if you are a parent, know that the children that God has placed in your life just are the children that God has placed in your life. Remember that that Jacob and Leah, they never earned the love of their father. Esau strove to do so. And none of them, none of them were able to rest in the love of their father, not in the love of Isaac, not in the love of Laban. And so we have to ask ourselves, can our children rest free 
free from anxiety and the love that we have for them? Are our children confident that no matter what happens, they will never lose you? But it's important to point out that the child also has a responsibility to the parent. The theological ethicist Gilbert Mylander, he he writes the following about the responsibilities between family members in an article that has the wonderful title, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. And it's a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. Mylander says, Is this not in large measure what it means to belong to a family, to burden each other, and to find almost miraculously that others are willing, even happy, to carry such burdens? Families would not have the significance they do for us if they did not, in fact, give us a claim upon each other. At least in this sphere of life, we do not come together as autonomous individuals freely contracting with each other. It is therefore understandable that we sometimes chafe under these burdens. If, however, we also go on to reject them, we cease to live in the kind of moral community that deserves to be called a family. Here, more than any other sphere of life, we are presented with unwanted and unexpected interruptions to our plans and projects. But it is still true that morality consists in large part in dealing with the unwanted and unexpected interruptions to our plans. I've tried to teach that lesson to my children. Perhaps I will teach it best when I am a burden to them in my dying. And while we don't often see this notion played out, perhaps in the modern world, this is God's intent for the family. And of course, it can take many different forms, but what Mylander is telling us is that we are called to receive and even rejoice in the many responsibilities that our relationships place upon us. Because these responsibilities, and especially the burdensome responsibilities, are both the expression of our love and the ways in which we learn to grow and to love those who we are called to love. As humans, we simply don't grow and mature by stepping back and wanting to grow and mature. We have to be placed in relations that actually demand our growth and maturity. The bonds that we are placed into, well, they're meant to be just that. And if you are not in relationships that require giving and receiving burdensome love and service, you will not grow or mature. And this has wide, wide implications. Where are you? Where has God placed you? Let the neighbors that God has placed you with, let those neighbors burden you. Let the community that God has placed you within, let that community burden you. Anyone who walks through the doors of this church, let those persons burden you. And what Mylander says about family is especially true about this family, the family of the church, the family of God. Last week, we welcomed new members into the church. And just as marriage is a covenant, the the, the church community itself is a covenant community. And all of us made vows of of love to support each other in our growth in Christ and, and also to help each other in the common needs of life. And so however we might feel about people in this church from day to day, we are called to the service and commitment of mutual responsibility. And as a church, we are meant to hold each other accountable in all of our many relationships. Again, in this passage, we see how a breakdown in one relationship works to affect all of the other relationships. 
What does that mean? Well, it means we should pay attention to all of the many kind of relationships in the church. We should work to foster strong marriages because strong marriages strengthen all of the other relationships in the church. We should work to foster strong relationships between parents and children because strong relationships between parents and children work to strengthen all of the other relationships in the church. But we must also pursue a strong focus on friendship. If you can only experience deep relational connections with other persons as spouses or as parents, then the church is not fulfilling its covenant with you. Whether married or single, with children or childless, the relationships of the church should be one of deep love and service and connection. If you find that marriage is the only way to have a deep and committed connection with another person in the church, then we as the church are not fulfilling our vows with one another. If we are not working to foster deep friendships, then this will contribute to the breakdown of marriages, the breakdown of parenting relationships, and the breakdown of all of the other kinds of relationships in the church. Are you struggling in your marriage? We'll also focus on strengthening your friendships. Invite a friend to, to coffee, to the pub, to the park. Are you struggling in your friendships? We'll also work to support the marriages in the church. Offer to, to babysit. Be willing to ask your married friends hard questions, questions about internet viewing and the like. In Genesis 29 and 30, we see the complete breakdown of the relationships that form and craft us as persons. And if we seek to grow in the Christian life, yes, personal prayer and personal devotions are essential. They are very, very important. But we also have to take a hard look at our surrounding relationships. To change only through our personal devotional life is to ignore the web of relationships in which we live and move and have our being and the good responsibilities and obligations they place upon us. Because what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is the modern notion of freedom. To not be tied down to anyone, to anything, or anywhere. And honestly, this is just another word for loneliness, for isolation. And amidst this sad and strange cultural ideal that is the modern notion of freedom, well, the community of the church is to be a people who need and burden and so actually love one another. The church, that is to say, is to be an actual community. And that brings us to our second point, and our, our second and third point are much shorter. The problem of reproach. But remember, think about this passage. Leah is not the only one who is struggling in her relationship. Just as the modern notion of freedom works to inhibit community, so too do dangerous cultural ideals present at the time of the passage. We see this in, in Rachel, Rachel has what Leah does not. She's beautiful and she has the love of her husband. But Rachel has not met the cultural ideal of what her culture believes a woman should be. Through no fault of her own, Rachel is infertile. She's unable to bear children. And in that culture, if you were a wife who couldn't bear children, then you suffered rejection. 
And we see this in Rachel's desperate cry to Jacob. Give me children or I shall die. Eventually, by God's grace, Rachel does have a child. But we find that this actually doesn't satisfy. What does she name the boy? She names him Joseph and indicates her wish for another child, that another child would be added to her. Perhaps she believed that she would be content if she could just have one child, but not so. She immediately wants another. And while she says that God has taken away my approach, she still feels that reproach very acutely. One child is not enough. She wants to bear many, especially when she looks at her rival, Leah, who has borne seven children. Yes, Rachel's culture has treated Rachel unfairly. But we also have to ask, have we done much better? Yes, our cultural ideals have changed, but we still apply them with the very same ruthlessness. We still make people feel, no matter what they do, that they are guilty of reproach and they must keep striving and striving and striving. I listened to an interview with uh, Alan Noble, a, a literature professor, and he noted that more and more of his college students, they're, they're terrified of, of graduating and, and moving on to the next step. They've been told by our culture that it's up to them to make their lives a, a great story, a kind of grand narrative, one that will impact generations to come, one that is wholly original, one that is wholly their own. And Noble points out that while this might seem like a great calling, while this might seem like an exhilarating opportunity, it's actually exhausting. It's a burden. It's a crushing weight. It's a view of life that will never let you rest or be content with who you are, what you have, and where you are. But Noble told the story of, of one recent conversation he had with a student, and he suggested to the student that perhaps you could go back to your, your hometown. I know you, you love your church, you love your community, and you could take a standard nine-to-five job there and just focus on investing regularly and deeply in your church and community. And in response, the student said, wait, I can actually do that? After 22 years of propaganda, the student felt that she had to make her life one of a grand narrative, a kind of life that's worthy of the movies. And because of this propaganda, this student and all of us as well take responsibilities upon ourselves that we as humans were never ever meant to bear. Because the good life, the good life is one that's built upon relationships and commitments. And it's one that's opened to persons of any place in any position. Otherwise, the, the good life would be the sole privilege of the elites. And even more, if we expect success to take away our cultural reproach, we will find that each new achievement is never enough. Just like the name Joseph indicates, we will constantly seek one more, that one might be added, one might be added, one might be added. And if you are a university student, as long as you are in this place with these people, please, please let us need you. Let our relationships with you limit your freedom. 
And I know that sounds strange and unattractive to our modern ears, but I promise you that is a good and noble privilege. And perhaps even consider staying here in Iowa City after graduation. Yes, God might call you elsewhere, and we want to support you in that call, and we want to do everything we can to send you to where God is calling you next. But don't quickly, too quickly, dismiss taking a job even in the area. Remember that Christians serve the creator of of all things, and all true work is, is noble. All work is theological. All of us have been called to tend part of God's creation. And so each and every form of work is suffused with dignity. The quiet, faithful life is a good life. And that brings us to our last point, the problem of love and reproach. We've talked a lot about relationships in this sermon. We focused on love and reproach. Leah seeks love and Rachel seeks the removal of reproach. And here we have two key components of healthy relationships. We all desire to be loved and to rest in that love without fear of rejection or being guilty of reproach. But we have to ask ourselves, are these two things at odds? Again, Leah wants to be loved because she wants to be seen and she wants to be heard, but how deeply can the seeing and hearing actually go? If anyone, Jacob or otherwise, saw and heard Leah completely, well then, they would see Leah's each and every reproach. It would all be revealed. Because Leah, like all of us, bears things that rightly deserve reproach. Again, infertility or not living a life like the movies, these are not proper reasons for approach. However, the things that we all carry inside of us, selfishness, jealousy, bitterness, lust, pride, well, these are worthy of approach. And we've all done things in our past that also are worthy of reproach. We've all lied and cheated, stolen, hurt, and used people and done a a million other reproachful things. So yes, we want to be seen and we want to be heard, but on our own terms. Perhaps you've you've had the experience of of saying something harsh to, to a child or a spouse, to a family member, to a friend, and then you look over and you see that the window is open and the neighbor is walking by just at that very instant. You feel exposed. You've been heard, but, but, but not in the way that you wanted to be heard publicly. Again, you want to be heard, but only to a certain extent. To be fully heard and to be fully seen, well, that is a terrifying prospect. It would be to be fully exposed, to, to, to bear all the ways that we are worthy of reproach. And so we think that to be loved, we, we have to hide a part of ourself. And therefore, our, our relationships, they, they often reach a kind of, of equilibrium between being heard and, and being seen, not, not too much, so that we can still be loved. We think that if we are heard and seen too much, then the other person will feel that we're not worthy of love. And so we have to ask our question, is there a way to be both perfectly known and perfectly loved? Can you be perfectly known and perfectly loved, but also be without reproach? 
Yes, we can. And we see that in this passage. Because who is it that sees and hears Leah through it all? We find that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And that when he heard that she was hated, he did the same. God sees and hears Leah perfectly, yet he loves Leah perfectly. How is this so? How can we rest without reproach in a perfect love in which we are perfectly known? Well, the answer comes in the birth of the fourth son. Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. In the birth of this son, she praised the Lord, and Judah means that she praised the Lord. And in Leah's praise here, we get the hint of more praise to come. Because from the line of Judah will come the one who will fulfill all of the promises that were promised to Abraham. And these are the promises that have shaped this family for generations. And one would come through whom all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Because of this promised one, we, like Leah, can be fully known and fully loved. Christ is that promised one who would come from the line of Judah, and one day Christ himself would be fully exposed. He would be rejected by his whole community, even by his closest friends. He would experience relational breakdown of each and every kind. Christ would be stripped and beaten and hung on a cross. He would be there exposed for all to see. But there's an irony here. Because the crowd that crucifies Christ, they do not see Christ at all. Because what is Christ? Christ is God the Son becoming human to save humanity. But all the crowd could see was a criminal deserving of death. One that they thought was worthy of the most ultimate reproach, the reproach of death. They did not see or hear or know Christ, and so they sought to kill him. But we also find that they don't even know what they themselves are doing. Christ himself prays on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Because if they knew Christ, they would fall before him in love and worship. But they did not know him, and so they sought to kill him. But Christ, Christ knows them. They don't realize the horrible thing that they're doing. They don't realize the deep corruption in their own hearts, but Christ sees them and Christ loves them. Christ looks deep into their heart. He sees sees causes for reproaches that they can't even imagine, that they don't even know. But nonetheless, Christ prays for them and Christ loves them. And we, all of us here, are just the same as that crowd. But Christ loves us, and Christ prays for us. So it's not their refusal to see Christ, not their refusal to hear Christ. It's not their hatred of Christ that keeps him on the cross. It's because Christ sees, and Christ hears, and Christ knows what they don't. It's because Christ knows all the ways that they, all the ways that we are guilty of reproach before God, all the ways we fail to love God and neighbor, and that's what keeps Christ on the cross. 
And on the cross, Christ bears the reproach that they, that we deserve. Because Christ, God can know us perfectly and God can love us perfectly. And we might feel unworthy of God's saving love and we would be right to do so. But in Christ, God has taken each and every bit of our reproach. Yes, God knows our every reproach, even the ones that we ourselves don't know, but he still loves us. And remember the words of Rachel, God has taken away my reproach, she says. But we can say even more. God has taken away my reproach by bearing it himself in Christ Jesus. Christ does not just take away our reproach. Christ actually takes our reproach. And as humans, this is our deepest desire to be perfectly known and perfectly loved. This is what Leah and Rachel desired, and this is what each of us desire in every one of our relationships. If you place your faith in Christ, you are perfectly known and perfectly loved by God himself without any and all reproach. And so resting in the approval and love of God, even if we are guilty of the most serious reproaches, we can move out into our other relationships with love. We can confess our shortcomings. God has already borne the reproach that we deserve for each and every failure, even the ones that we don't know about. We can be open and honest with others. We are already perfectly loved and known by God, and so we don't derive our worth from the opinion of others. We can be merciful to others. We have been forgiven because Christ has borne the reproach for each and every sin. God has been more merciful to us than we could ever be to any other human being. Christ is what each and every relationship on the church should be founded upon. This is the only community, the only community where we can be both perfectly loved and perfectly known. And this is only and always because God in Christ has taken our reproach. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to take the reproach that we deserve, that we can seek what Leah seeks, that we can be loved, that we can seek what Rachel seeks, that we can be free from reproach. Help us to rest in that. Help us to know that and help that to found and ground each of our relationships to each other as we seek to serve and be mutually obligated to one another as persons, as the family of your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.